This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We start with those brutal lineups at YVR. Have you been out to the airport lately? Get set to call me on this one today and tell me what those lineups have been like. The problem at YVR, it's a staff shortage of security screeners. I've got the vice president of the airport standing by. First, have a listen to this report now from global news reporter Grace Key. I've never seen this in my life, and I travel quite often. It's actually pretty ridiculous. A, B, and C screening will be down this way. I don't see the end of the line. It's my first time here. Yes. I have no idea where I'm going. Guess we just have to be patient. The problem, a staffing shortage with CATSA, the federal agency responsible for passenger screening. Ultimately, this is a security function. Uh, that is the responsibility of CATSA on behalf of the federal government. And while we can do these mitigation measures, they are, by definition, mitigation. They don't address the core problem, and the core challenge is staffing. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Mike McNanny. Mike is the Vice President and Chief External Affairs Officer at YVR. You heard his uh, voice there at the end of that report. Mike, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Okay, can you explain why this is happening for people who are showing up at the airport, they're following all the advice, showing up like three hours early, and they're still in these mind-numbing lineups? What's going on? So what, what is occurring is uh, CASA. I mean, CASA has the, the responsibility from the federal government for all passenger screening across the country. They are experiencing some pretty severe staffing shortages, and it seems to be more acute uh, in Vancouver than it is in other parts of the country, though we have started to see it now in Toronto and, and elsewhere. So what we have been asking CATSA management is provide us with the plan and the strategy on how in heck in the short term we're going to address this. And then in the medium to longer term, there has to be a, a broader and deeper discussion around changing policies and procedures and, and regulations on how we can best maximize technology and ensure that we don't find ourselves caught in a position like this again. Okay, CATSA is the Canadian Air Transport Security Authority, and it is a, a federal crown corporation. So this is down to the feds, right? There's nothing you guys can do about it. That, that's right. Now, what we are trying to do, of course, for the passengers who are here in the terminal, we are trying everything we can with, with mitigation uh, to, to try and help people. So put them, move them up in front of the line if their flight is going to be taking off very quickly, trying to, to take them to uh, and, and direct them to a different check-in point if there's a particularly better throughput somewhere else. But at the end of the day, yes, this is, this is a security function. So there is obviously an inherent yeah. level of, of seriousness in this. It is a security function and it does fall to the federal government. How long are these lineups? Like, how long are people waiting in line to get through security? Yesterday was was reasonable. Uh, there was no, we certainly did not see what we had seen in the previous 72 uh, plus hours. This morning, you were seeing it build up again, uh, particularly through the morning rush. So that's why we have, we are now asking people to show up uh, two hours in advance for domestic and three hours for international. And you were seeing that too from our carrier partners, the emails and the messages that they are sending to their passengers are stating the same. Okay, I've heard from people who have heard that advice. They've showed up three hours early in many cases, and they're still in these brutal lineups and worried about missing their flights. 
what what do you say to people about about that? Should they show up even earlier? Like, that's got to be frustrating to you as the vice president of the airport. See this going on. It, it, it is very frustrating, and of course. I'm a passenger, too, and I flew out of here last week, so I, I, I could experience it firsthand, in addition, of course, from the airport's perspective. How, lo- how long there- were you in line? How long were you in line? And, and that's an interesting element to it. For me, uh, it was Friday afternoon at around 5.30, and it was 15 minutes. So there's quite an ebb mm. and flow to this throughout the day, and that's why, uh, you know, again, we come back to the, to the blanket request of folks to arrive in that two and three. And what we expect to occur when you're arriving two hours in advance, yes, there is going to be a line there, but that should be giving you ample time, uh, and ample is a, is a relative word in all of this, obviously, but that should be providing time that uh, you will indeed manage to make it through uh, CATSA and the and security clearance, irregardless of whatever the staffing might be at that time. But you are still going to see a line and you are still going to be stuck in a line to get through that process. Speaking to Mike McNanny, Vice President of YVR, let me play a clip here for you, Mike, from the Federal Transportation Minister, Omar Algabra, who was asked about these brutal lineups. And his response here probably won't be very encouraging. Let's have a listen. No quick fix to this problem. Are we going to see elimination of lineups immediately? I'll be honest with you. I don't think so. It's not going, it's not going to be uh, a magic wand or a silver bullet. Okay, so apparently he does not have a magic wand, but presumably he's got some kind of plan to fix this. Is there one, to your knowledge? Well, that, that's a good question. Uh, and, of course, I, I, I will always defer to uh, the minister and, and, and their statements of how they plan to address this, because you know, this is a federal, a federal issue. But in the short term, so to your point, in the short term, it is staffing. It is quite clearly this is a staffing shortage. The, the, the lanes are there, the equipment is there, but they are not all being operated when they should be. And, of course, there are various passenger screening checkpoints throughout the airport, whether you're going international, transport, or domestic, and they are not all being operated when they should be. So short term, it is definitely a staffing issue. But that does, to, to his point, that does get to, the, to, to what I was saying a few moments ago. There is this longer term issue of how we carry out passenger screening, the regulations that have to be followed, the processes that have to be followed, the equipment that is currently used and upgrades to that equipment. None of that is, is, a, is a quick solution piece, but it absolutely has to be part of the engagement with industry and the engagement with carriers going forward. Okay, so that sounds like what? There's some better equipment they could put in there that would speed this up. Is that correct? Yeah, there, there's there's different ways in which passenger screening is done uh, around the world. So if, if you look at here in Canada, CATSA is funded by Parliament to get 85% of passengers through in 15 minutes. So with, within the industry, it's called 85-15. That is an average extrapolated out across the totality of the operating day. In other jurisdictions, the metric is on a 15-minute basis. So you are measuring the efficiency of clearing through the security process on 15-minute time increments. And again, we have to understand this is absolutely a security function. This is an important security function. So you're not simply focused on speed. You're, you're focused on efficiency and throughput tied to efficiency and meeting your security objectives. But there are different ways of doing this, and, and you see this in other jurisdictions, in particular the EU, and all of that needs to be part of this, this uh, a broader, longer-term approach. Right now, it's a short-term issue, staffing, but we have to have these other conversations too. I got an email here from a listener a short time ago says, are these shortages being caused by 
a federal fa- vaccine mandate. The, the listener says, I'm a federal employee, I'm unvaccinated, I, and I want to go back to work. To your knowledge, does that, does that have anything to do with this? Like people, who workers who've been laid off or whatever because they're not vaccinated? I, I can't speak to the particulars uh, in terms of the, the hiring with CATSA and their suppliers. My understanding is that coming out of the pandemic, and of course, we're still in the pandemic to some degree, but coming out of uh, recovery, uh, they have uh, uh, have folks that were furloughed who are not uh, returning to work or decided not to return, and that has contributed uh, to their shortfall. What is behind that? I don't know. Mike, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Here we go with our high-rise debate in Vancouver now. The Broadway plan for Vancouver. This is a massive redevelopment plan for the city. It features several new proposed high-rise towers, our concrete canyons, the future of the city. Where else are you going to build? Is there anywhere else to build? you got to build up, don't you? We need density, right? This is a huge development project here in a plan, and not everyone's on board with it. we got a great panel to discuss it here for you now. We have both sides of it. Bill Thielman, political columnist, president of West Star Communications. He's opposed to the plan. Hey, Bill. Bill, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you, Mike. Okay, thanks for coming on. Andre Pavlov is also here. He's a professor of real estate and finance. Simon Fraser University, he supports the plan. Andre, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. All right, gentlemen, thank you to both of you. Bill, let me go to you first. I follow you on Twitter. You tweeted the other day. This got a lot of attention. You called this plan a dystopian plan that would turn Vancouver into these concrete canyons. Tell me why you feel that way. Well, we've, we look around the world, Mike, and we see the great world cities, Paris, Barcelona, Amsterdam, all over uh, the place. <clears throat> they don't have giant 40-story skyscrapers at the corners of every metro station that they have. They actually have, Paris has limit, severe limitations on height. And, and not, Vancouver's obviously not Paris. Paris is a much bigger and older city. But um, it's a model for us to look at. And then the more you see coming out of the Broadway plan, we had a a premature decision at Broadway and Granville to put up a 39-story building, even though the Broadway plan is coming in a couple of weeks. They decided to go ahead and council voted 9-2 to in favor of that. That will dramatically change uh, not only the skyline, but uh, it's a pattern for the rest of the Broadway plan, which would allow 20- to 40-story uh, high-rises all along Broadway from Vine Street in uh, on the west side to down uh, past uh, into East Broadway. And I just think this is going to, uh, first of all, it's going to uh, basically rent, uh, evict many, many thousands of low-rent uh, and reasonable rent renters who are along there in two, three, four-story buildings and put up these giant skyscrapers. But it's, the, it's also about the livability of the city. We don't need a giant concrete canyon all the way down Broadway with people jammed into very high buildings um, when we can actually do much more creative things, much more interesting ways to, to find people okay. housing as opposed to uh, Mayor Kennedy Stewart's plan, which would put these giant skyscrapers up. And then this kind of fantasy land plan that I've talked about in the Vancouver Sun today, the idea that you could take renters, move them out, find temporary housing for thousands of renters while new buildings are built, and then put them back in there at the same rent or lower. Uh, all you have to do is trust yeah. the, uh, the the mayor and developers to do this. And I'm just like, it's, it's impossible stuff. Okay, so, okay. We've got a, I've got a clip of Kennedy Stewart here promising to protect these renters. I'll play in a moment. But let me go to Andre Pavlov, give, give, uh, get his thoughts on it. Andre, go ahead. What do you think? 
Yes, I mean, Bill brings up very important concerns and very legitimate concerns that uh, the neighbors have about um, any kind of densification. Um, there's uh, obviously parking congestion, uh, views, uh, just, um, uh, you know, there's all kinds of legitimate concerns. So, so I'm very sympathetic to that. Uh, what we also need to consider, of course, is the fact that we have a very, very severe shortage of housing. And uh, the reason we need to even talk about affordable rental and affordable housing, uh, and, and we talk about this all the time, is that we're really, really very short, and there's all kinds of numbers to buy that up. Uh, so, so any plan needs to consider uh, the, the legitimate concerns of neighbors and, and, and address those um, with, with the need to really vastly increase uh, our housing supply, not just uh, a few thousand units here and there. We need quarter yeah, of a million uh, units over the next um, really just a few years. And Andre, would you agree that building these towers along that Broadway corridor makes the most sense? They're putting in a new subway line there, rapid transit. So that's where you should densify, right? That's where you build the high rises next door to the subway station. So people don't need a car. You can just walk downstairs and get on a SkyTrain or whatever. Does that make sense to you? That's where we should densify along these transit corridors. Yeah, so we, we've done that in, in with other uh, previous uh, transit lines, uh, Campy, for example. Uh, we have densified not quite to the extent that we're seeing now, but we have densified. And in my view, that has been successful. Um, I mean, I, I, I go on Campy and I don't see, I don't think that of, of being a concrete canyon. I think that of being actually quite reasonable and, and a balanced development, development along a rapid transit line that, um, reduces the need to to drive everywhere and, and makes it okay. makes the city more connected. So so there are definitely benefits for that. At the same time, I do again want to acknowledge Bill's concern that this impacts the neighbors and and and, and this needs to be addressed. So I think a much more of a neighborhood level approach um, is it would be more prudent actually than than a citywide uh, plan. Bill Thielman, your tweet about the dystopian future, the concrete canyons, man, oh man, that really set off a firestorm there on social media with people debating you saying like, hey, like we need affordable housing. Where are people going to live? What do you say to that? That this is this is the way we got to go forward. We got to build up. There's nowhere no, else to build, or is it? That's exactly the point, Mike. You don't have to build up. You can do infill. You can do low rise. We've seen both environmentally and for livability of cities. We've seen that uh, the the future should be a low rise, higher density, but low rise uh, development. Because once you start putting people into giant towers, you're eliminating green space. The environmental side of all of the uh, all of the carbon footprint of giant concrete buildings all over <clears throat> is enormous not to mention the amount of cooling and energy they require so there's environmental reasons and there's there's human reasons to have a much more uh, a, a lower rise of of density and not have these giant uh, skyscrapers, which also, I mean, this is going to completely change Vancouver's skyline. That's just one of many aspects of this. But, you know, the, the city council, unfortunately, has continually just uh, rubber stamped almost these developments. And, and one of the things they want to do with the Broadway plan is eliminate uh, zoning hearing. So uh, if they want, if they get this Broadway plan through, then they'll just say, well, you know, you you wake up one morning and you've got a uh, a building going up next to you of 20 to 40 stories. And they'll just say, well, you know, we passed the Broadway plan. You had your chance. You're out of luck. And then, and we've got an election in October. Like that's where, okay. put it on, if the Broadway plan is so great, put it on the ballot. Let the voters decide. Let the city decide on whether they want to do this or not. And I'm, I would quite convinced they would say no.
Andre Pavlov, do you think that these high-rise towers are basically inevitable in Vancouver that we have to build up? We've got to build these taller buildings. I mean, Bill says, "Hey, why don't we be like Paris, you know, where the the highest the tallest building in the skyline is the Eiffel Tower?" You know, is that Do you think we got to build up? The issue is that is we are nowhere near uh, what Paris is. Uh, in fact, Canada has the lowest number of housing units per capita in the G7 countries. And guess who has the highest? It is actually France. So, yeah, sure, great to, to uh, look at other cities, but we're actually on the opposite side of that uh, at the moment. And in my view, anything we can do to, to increase our housing supply is welcome because this is really hampering our uh, society and our economy. Yeah. Um, okay, Bill, you now, mentioned... Yeah, I, I want to play a clip of the, just in the interest of time, I want to get this clip in from Kennedy's, Mayor Kennedy Stewart speaking yesterday at a, at a news conference. So, Bill, you mentioned that this could potentially displace people who are renting uh, in low-rise buildings along that Broadway corridor right now. So Kennedy Stewart yesterday saying, it's okay, don't worry, we're going to take care of those renters. They will have an option to move back into these new buildings at the same rent or maybe even lower rent. So here's what Kennedy Stewart had to say yesterday, then I'll get your thoughts. I believe that we are at the dawn of a housing revolution in Vancouver. These folks would be fully compensated either with a cash payout or with a right to return uh, to a new building at or below their current rents. These would come from the builders. Okay, so they would be able to rent in the new buildings at the same rent, maybe even lower, or they take a cash payout. Bill, your thoughts? Well, it's it's just impossible. It's it's fantasy land kind of stuff. You're going to take thousands of, of current renters, temporarily house them for two, three, four years while these new buildings are built, then move them back, pay their moving costs, and move them back into a brand spanking new high-rise and give them a brand spanking new apartment for the same or even lower rent, is what Mayor Stewart said yesterday. That is not going to happen. You'd have to, uh, you know, I, I got a bridge to buy, to sell to you if you want to buy that story. I think it's absolutely ludicrous. And, you know, and he says he's talked to some developers generally about the idea. This doesn't sell. So what will happen, first of all, if, if even if you believe that, if the council changes or if developers change their mind, what happens to people then? And I looked at uh, Mayor Stewart's news release. He's talking about if you get a buyout, you might get 11000 bucks. Well, that's the cost of doing business for people. Uh, I mean, they, the developers would make that back with higher rents in less than a year. You know, jack the rents. Yeah. And we look at the rents that have gone up. Over the last four okay. years of, of this existing council, the housing prices have gone up astronomically and rents have gone up astronomically. So whatever they've been doing, it hasn't been working. Okay, Andre Pavlov, real quickly before we take a break here, what do you think about those renters there in that neighborhood? It is really quite absurd that we even have to have that conversation. And, and the reason we have to have a conversation is the result of our severe undersupply of housing for years in a row. Uh, this should not be a problem if, uh, if, if in a normal city where, uh, we, where housing supply is in place, people can move and renters can move and find reasonable accommodation at the same or, or similar rent uh, without the need for government intervention and without the need for all these uh, grant statements and things. Now, of course, we find ourselves in this severe situation, which which forces us to help people and and uh, and look after them. I don't see, I, I actually agree with the bill that I don't see the, the, the chance of uh, moving them back into a brand new building as, as a viable option, but the, uh, but the cash payout is, uh, is certainly workable, I think, and, uh, okay. and that might actually improve the situation of both the renters 
and uh, also um, provide for more housing supply. All right. Welcome back to our Vancouver high-rise debate. The Broadway plan for Vancouver would feature several new high-rise towers. We've got both sides of it here for you. Bill Thielman, Andre Pavlov, lots of calls on this one. Elizabeth in North Vancouver. Hi, Elizabeth. Go ahead. Hey, how are you guys doing? Good. Good. Um, yeah, so I would just like to remind one of your guests there. Um, the Broadway subway plan, where he's talking about how um, all these people that would be using the transit system. I myself used to live in a beautiful apartment on North Road. It was perfect. Two bedrooms, super cheap rent. All those got torn down to be replaced by the big towers for the Evergreen Line. Um, wow. I actually ended up going uh, and landscaping at these buildings several years after they were completed. And I can tell you one thing. Nobody uses the SkyTrain. In fact, all you see all day coming out of those garages is BMWs, uh, Audis, oh. just car after car after car, nonstop. Nobody takes the trains. The trains are empty. I don't know if you guys have ever taken the Evergreen Line, but it's not busy there at all. And in fact, it just put way more cars on the road. And uh, oh. all those people that were in that beautiful community have all been displaced. Most of them had to go on commission or job. It, it actually was proposed that that evergreen line would be great for the commuters to get to work, but nobody uses it. It's all just car after car after car. It's really depressing. I, I pay twice as much for right now somewhere else. And uh, it really destroyed okay. the community and uh, and the skyline and, and all that stuff, you know? Okay, it's, it's okay Liz- Elizabeth, thank you for a, a really interesting call. Andre Pavlov, what do you say to those concerns? Well, as I already said, those concerns are very legitimate. It is correct that, uh, that the densification especially at a large scale, does impact the neighbors. And I think care must be taken to address those concerns and really go as far as compensating them. Um, Those developments are already uh, collecting um, uh, a number of community amenity contribution fees and and other charges. Some of that should go, uh, if not all of it, should really go to to compensate the neighbors uh, for the impact of densification. Um, okay, Bill, Bill Tillman, just in the interest of time, Bill Tillman, isn't this, though, the classic NIMBY argument? Not in my backyard. I don't want you to build this where I live. Your thoughts? Well, I think it's about local democracy, Mike. It's about neighbors making decisions on, on huge developments that would affect their, their livability, their whole... Uh, they've all paid their taxes. They, in many cases, have bought their places and others their renters, and they have a right to say so. Uh, they have a right to have their say on this and hold city council accountable uh, for these kind of uh, massive developments. But I thought Elizabeth's point was exactly right. I, I mean, you, you saw all of this um, basically rent-controlled and affordable housing destroyed and giant uh, high-rises put in for people who are in, in a much, much higher income category, and that's what's going to happen along Broadway if this is passed. Let's go to Hugh on the line in Kitsilano. Hi, Hugh. Go ahead. Hello, Mike. Yeah, I live on uh, Vine Street in Kits. And one thing you got to remember is it, when they put in a stop, <clears throat> it's considered 800 meters circumference that they can tear down the small-rise uh, apartments and put in high-rises. Yeah. And when I walk around my neighborhood, Gateway sold to a company called Tribe.com uh, Rentals. Yeah. They're all small high-rises. Look out. This is going to be nasty. Okay, so you think... I'm it, in, I'm in that, I've, I put it down to blocks, you know, yeah. 800 meters. I'm in yeah. that area. Yeah. Oh, yeah. People in Kitsilano, I know, are watching this closely. Hugh, thank you for the call. Squeeze another one in here. Steve in Coquitlam. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. You get 30 seconds. 
Uh, yeah, thanks, Mike. I'll take, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, uh, any of these guys think about the safety aspects? We're in an earthquake zone. You know, these things are, I think, are going to end up coming down if they're going to go that high with all the debris and everything if we get a quake. Number two, if you listen to the lyrics from The Last Resort by the Eagles, they're saying somebody made the mountains low as the town got high. There's a hint there that, you know, the block and the views. Hmm. What are they going to do if there's an emergency on the top floor or whatever? I mean, Thanks for taking my call. Okay, thank you for the call. Andre, do you want to respond to that real quickly here in 20 seconds? Go ahead. Yeah, I totally got the concerns for the neighbors, but I don't understand the objections to the high-rises themselves. Uh, this is an engineering problem. People have high-rises all over the world that have been very successful. They are safe in earthquakes. Um, all those issues can be addressed. And actually, they are very energy efficient. It is, uh, okay. it is one of the most energy efficient building farms out there. Okay, I want to thank both of you. We could have done a, a lot longer on this topic, and I would love to have you both back to do that. Bill Thielman, Andre. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Pavlov. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about affordable housing in British Columbia right now or lack thereof. For a lot of people who are renting or looking for a decent, affordable place to rent, man, it is a jungle out there. It is really, really tough to find affordable, decent place to rent right now. I've talked to friends of mine who are actually thinking of moving out of the lower mainland metro Vancouver to try and find a cheaper place to live. They're out of here. They're out of here. Even people who are in places like the Fraser Valley, typically been more affordable in the past. It's getting brutally expensive there too. So some people are choosing to look elsewhere. Let's discuss that now with my guest, Ashley Jesse. Ashley moved to the BC interior to find a, some more affordable housing, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, Ashley. Thank you for coming on. Hi. Hi, Ashley. Thanks a lot for doing this. I also have a Randine Ware on. She's the executive director at the Turning Points Collaborative Society, and they have helped Jess, uh, Ashley out. Randine, thank you for coming on today. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having us both. You bet. Thank you to both of you for coming on. Okay, Ashley, let's talk about your story here now. You used to live in Victoria, correct? Yes, I did. Okay, and tell me about your journey here. Like, you've been... What happened in Victoria? You had a place there, but then what happened? The landlord... Landlord, you got evicted, or what? how did you lose your place there? No, I lived with friends with a bunch of roommates because Victoria was so expensive. Usually a bunch of people would rent out a apartment or a house altogether. Yeah. Um, and then okay. I, got, I got pregnant and I could no longer, I couldn't have my kid at that place. And while looking for housing, there was nothing that I could afford. Yeah. And then you decided to move to Vernon Yes, Correct. I moved to Vernon, B.C. because uh, I found a bachelor suite for $800. $800 for a bachelor in Vernon. How did that work out for you? Um, it worked out really well. Uh, luckily, it was uh, someone I knew was putting it up for rent. 
So that's why I was able to get into it. Yeah, no, it's good to have a connection like that for sure. How long did you live there? Um, from February 2020 until October 2020. Okay, and, th- and then what happened? Um, and then we decided we needed a bigger place because I'd had the baby and uh, we wanted something bigger. And we found a two-bedroom for 1200 Okay. Yeah, and, and we uh, stayed there for a year and a half. Okay. And, um, and what happened? And the reason we left was because the landlord was moving back in. Right. Right. Um, I mean, this happens to a lot of people that they're renting a place and then the landlord decides to move in and man, then you're out of luck. Right. So you had to move again. (laughs) And uh, looking at places compared to when we had looked um, the year and a half before prices had immensely spiked. Vernon went from an average of 12 to 1600, even sometimes lower than 12 for a two bedroom to 18 to 22. Wow. Wow. And you just, what, you could not afford that? Um, I could afford it, except half the time they won't allow pets, and other times they just won't answer you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. How, how many kids you got? You got two kids, right? Yes, I have two kids. Okay. Difficult, right? Difficult. I know your kids are real small, too. That, that's got to be stressful for young family, young mom with young kids. Uh, yeah, it was it was definitely stressful. Having dealing with housing myself by, um, before was fine, but now that I have kids, it's a lot more stress on top of it. Yeah, I have no doubt. Where are you living now? Um, I'm living in a hotel uh, given to me by Turning Point. Uh, yeah. Luckily, they were amazing to be able to help me out in my time of need. Okay, what's that like living in a motel with two kids? Uh, cramped, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm still lucky to be here. Yeah. Okay. Boy, I'm, I'm sorry for your troubles here, but yeah, it sounds like you're, you're rolling with it here. Randine Ware is executive director at Turning Points there in Vernon. Randine, tell me how you were able to help out Ashley here. Yeah, we've been lucky enough. Uh, BC Housing has helped us to secure a couple of motel buildings where we've been able to put families in one of the motels that offer suites. There's one in two bedroom units in there. Um, but the demand is is far more than what we're able to provide. We get four to six calls every single week from new families that just are unable to afford uh, the places that they're staying at. Or we have a lot of uh, situations with the booming housing market where, you know, a, a house will sell that has a suite in it. Well, maybe the new folks don't want to be renting the suite out anymore. Yeah, and it's really, it may be surprising for people to hear that this is happening in smaller communities in the BC interior too, like Vernon, for example. Like, how quick, how much has that changed? How much have the rents gone up there? Oh, it's outrageous. Like Ashley was mentioning that twelve to 1600 used to be able to get a, a two-bedroom uh, unit two years ago, pre-pandemic. But now we're looking upwards of $2,500 for a two-bedroom place to rent. And then, as Ashley was saying, if you have pets, children, like all those things are, are going to be barriers for, for gaining housing. Right. Ashley, what are your plans here going forward now? How long do you think you'll be living there? Are you, are you still looking for somewhere else to live at this point? or? Oh, I spend every single day looking on Marketplace. Um, I look all over BC, though. Um, wow. So, yeah. What are you seeing out there? 
Uh, I'm seeing that uh, even though I left Victoria, Vernon is the same price as Victoria now. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, so even when you look at other communities, like you say, you're looking, you're willing to move anywhere to find an affordable place to live. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, boy. And everywhere, does everywhere seem to be expensive? Um, actually, no. I just found out yesterday that if I move all the way up to Prince George, I can get a oh. uh, really nice housing. Okay. Prince George, that's a long way to go. Are you prepared to do that? Not really. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, people want to, they want to live where they want to live. But Randine, are you, is, this a, is this a story you're hearing more and more often? Absolutely. We're, we're hearing it all the time. I think partly with the pandemic, people realizing they could work from home, they're going to move to a, a community. Maybe they have family connections in Vernon and it's affordable, but it, it was affordable and it offered all of the same amenities of, of a bigger town like Kelowna. The problem is it's become unaffordable now. Yeah. Would, would that apply, do you think, throughout the entire Okanagan? Yes, we work from, yeah. uh, we have projects from Summerland to Enderby, so it absolutely applies. Yeah. What do you think the answer to this is, Randine? Like, this is uh, becoming a, a no. crisis, an affordability crisis everywhere. Like, even in communities that used to be clearly affordable just a couple of years ago, not so much anymore. What, what do you think needs to be done? Well, there's certain things that, I mean, we can definitely look to other countries and places and what they've done. I mean, governments at all levels need to be working with developers and housing nonprofits and to solve this. There are a number of examples around the world, like I was saying, in, in Finland, for example, by 2027, the country will have eliminated homelessness. But first, they had to declare housing as a human right. And then, if we look at it with that kind of a philosophy, then we're going to be building a lot more public housing and affordable housing. Where another example in Vienna, Austria, which is a beautiful place, two thirds of the residents are in public housing, and many pay as little as ten percent of their income to rent. Well, this, these sound reasonable. So why are other countries able to do this? Yeah, there's often uh, you know people will often also say that we need more we need more housing, we need to build more, we need more supply. What is the supply like in uh, the Okanagan where where you help people? Is are the vacancy rates really low? They're extremely low. They're under one yeah. percent. And part of that is you know we need access to land. That's that's definitely one of the gaps that we have found. Uh, land that may be zoned correctly, or you know you're able to build enough density to make a difference. It's extremely difficult to find land in the Okanagan. Right, right. Ashley, I wish you luck here in your search for a, a more affordable and permanent place to live. Is the Okanagan, you know, a preference for you at this point? You'd like to stay in that area? If I had the choice, I'd rather... I, I would love to go back home because that's where everyone I know is. But at this point, I'll go wherever I can find housing. You mean when you say back home, you mean back to Victoria? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and what's the situation like in Victoria? How would you describe that? Um, um, almost everyone I know from school is having issues with housing. So um, it's, it's hard out there. Um, yeah. If you're wanting to find a place, you have to find a place out of town for sure. But I've, I've seen places the same price as Vernon now, so it's almost worth going back. Yeah, wow. wow. Okay, Randine. Have you ever seen anything like this, like the way this is spreading to other communities that used to be affordable? 
Yeah, not here. You know, I used to live in Victoria and I understand, you know, that the the rental crisis that was happening there sooner than here. But now, as Ashley was saying, it's pretty much the same price in Vernon as it is in Victoria. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Okay, well, Ashley, I'm very grateful to you for sharing your story today. Good luck to you in your search for a permanent home. I hope it all works out for you. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about that bombshell leak from the U.S. Supreme Court now. A draft opinion from the court would overturn Roe v. Wade, the landmark decision of the court in the 1970s that protected a woman's right to choose to have an abortion in the United States. This would be a massive overhaul of abortion law in the United States if this goes forward. Get set for a political firestorm over this issue in America. It has already started. Have a listen to Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts speaking yesterday. This is what the Republicans have been working toward this day for decades. They have been out there plotting, carefully cultivating these Supreme Court justices so they could have a majority on the bench who would accomplish something that the majority of Americans do not want. Okay, this suddenly abortion is the biggest political issue in the United States right now. Could it spark an abortion debate here in Canada? Let's discuss now with my guest, Megan Doherty, Director of Global Policy, Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights. Megan, thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. What went through your mind when you heard about this draft opinion in the United States to overturn Roe v. Wade? I mean, I was devastated, but at the same time, it wasn't unexpected. Uh, we knew something like this was, was likely going to, to happen. But like Elizabeth Warren, I was very angry and I'm sad, uh, but I'm also my resolve for us to ensure that abortion access is not only retained in Canada, but improved, um, has, has redoubled today. Yeah, how could it affect this debate in the United States now? How could that impact the debate here in Canada, or do you think it will? So it, the legal and policy and social context in Canada is very different than what it is in the United yeah. States. And it's important to remember that abortion is regulated in Canada as a health service, just like any other health service, because it is a health service. Um, and so uh, each provincial jurisdiction uh, is responsible for making sure that those services are available to everybody who needs and wants them. And, and the political discussions around abortion are also different in Canada than they are in the United States. Here, we are very focused on improving access to, uh, to safe abortion and, and all of the supportive services that are, are necessary uh, to ensure that all people can access those services. The, it is a false debate to talk about whether or not abortion is good or bad. Uh, women and all people who can get pregnant have abortions, whether there is a criminal law in place or not. And what we in Canada, we have an obligation um, through our our current system to make sure that that everybody can have the access 
to to this essential health care service that they need. Speaking to Megan Doherty from Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights, it's a major pro-choice group here in Canada. Uh, for listeners who may be wondering, we we did reach out to the Campaign Life Coalition, which is the largest pro-life group in Canada. Uh, we made multiple overtures to them to come on the show today. Uh, they they did not respond to our, our invitation. Megan, let me ask you about the, speaking of politics here in Canada, I think it's already, we're already seeing signs that this could become a debate here on our side of the border too. We heard Prime Minister Justin Trudeau this morning saying that he has perhaps some legislation in mind to put in front of the House of Commons in order to guarantee abortion access and rights going forward in Canada. Uh, the Conservatives also commenting on this. Let me play a clip here for you to get your thoughts. And this is Scott Atchison who is a conservative MP currently running for the conservative party leadership. And I think he senses here that there's a, a debate in Canada, a political debate in Canada coming here over abortion. Have a listen to what he says here. I will always defend a woman's right to personal choice in all reproductive health services. Canadians are looking for leadership to address the major challenges of our time. While there are intense passions and convictions on either side of this debate, the vast majority of Canadians do not want this issue reopened. Scott Etchison, who's running for the Conservative Party leadership, commenting yesterday. Megan, do you think he's right there? Most Canadians, they don't want this issue reopened on our side of the border. Your thoughts? So the majority of Canadians support access to abortion. So, um, so, so there is that. But it's to say that it's not going to be reopened is actually kind of the wrong, the wrong question to ask or the wrong point to make, because uh, abortion is access to abortion is something that people need every day, whether it's in the headlines or not. And uh, it's our obligation and the government's obligation to make sure that everybody has access to that service. And so there will be, need to be discussions about how we're going to improve that access. That is a much more productive, uh, helpful debate for, for people who are actually needing to use these services. And, and when you think about who are the people who are experiencing the barriers to these services right now, these are people uh, living on low incomes, people living in rural areas, um, racialized people, people with disabilities, um, and young people, right? Those, the barriers that these people experience when they're trying to access health services including abortion, that needs to continue to be addressed until they are resolved. And so okay. the, the conversation that we need to be having is not whether or not we're having a debate or not. The question is, how are we going to improve access to services? Right. And, and in terms of access across Canada right now, like I, I think you're taking from your comments there that would you describe it as kind of a patchwork across the country? It depends where you live. It definitely depends on where you live. Um, yeah. Some provinces um, have better uh, access uh, to services than others do. Um, it also largely depends on whether or not you live in a rural area or if you live in an urban area. We know that the majority of surgical abortion services are provided in, in urban centers across the country, and those services are not available uh, in many cases in, in smaller local communities. What is important also um, is the introduction of medical abortion, which has improved access considerably across this country. 
where it's uh, it's the the process in which you are able to access it requires less engagement with the healthcare system than a surgical abortion. So looking right. to find more prescribers um, and find ways to um, improve access in, in that context. Megan, thank you for coming on today. All right. Thank you so much for having me.